Open your Bibles with me, please, this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we began something together. It's been a few weeks ago now, but uh, the Lord's really talking to us, and I believe he's helping us with some things. Somebody say it out loud. I am am complete complete in him. him. That's the name of this series that we've been in, complete in him. And I want you to say it again, but I want you to say it with some... I don't know, something, you know, something down deep that shows some conviction, shows some belief. Say, I am am complete complete in him. him. You believe that this morning? We're looking at scriptures together that tell us about that. And and you see that here in the book of Colossians chapter 2. The Bible says in verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, now what? That's the end, right? I mean, that's all you got to do. You heard the preacher give that call and you went to the front and you repeated the words and you got born again and, and that's it. Or is it? Come on. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, now what? Walk in him. Walk in him. And I got to tell you, I believe to a certain extent there is a misunderstanding When it comes to understanding what the grace of God really is, you hear people talk often about the finished works of Jesus. Have you heard that phrase before? The finished works of Jesus. And oftentimes that comes as a a quote of what he said, the last thing out of his mouth hanging on the cross when he said, it is finished. And people talk a lot about the finished works of Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me. When it comes to your righteousness and mine, the work is done. Jesus finished that work. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When you believe that in your heart and you said it with your mouth, you became the righteousness of God. He made you that and that work is done, baby, done. There's nothing more for him to do for you to be righteous. And there's nothing more for you to do to be righteous. You're not still trying to earn something from him. You're not trying to measure up to something. You believed it in your heart. You said it with your mouth. And bless God, your faith made you righteous in his sight. Grace offered it. Faith took it. And those works are finished. But I think somewhere along the way, somebody heard about finished works and what it translated to and the way they heard it was everything's done. So I'm done. I'm done. There's nothing more to do. Now, listen to me. Me, Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy, along with my lovely wife, Pastor Sarah. Man, we are grace preachers. I don't know if you know that about us yet or not, but we believe big time. In the grace of God. We're also faith preachers. Because one without the other is incomplete. Without the grace of God given to you, there's nothing to have faith in. But without faith, there's no way to lay hold of what grace has done. So people say, are you a grace preacher? Yes. Well, I thought you were a faith preacher. Yes. But you want to know who my favorite grace faith preacher is of all time? Jesus. Jesus. Grace preacher, 
faith preacher extraordinaire. And you see the combination of these two things right here in this verse. As you have received Jesus, that's grace. Because you didn't do a thing in the world to earn it. There was nothing you did that God said, I owe you salvation through my son Jesus. You received him. And grace gave Jesus to you. But you received him by faith. Now what? Walk in it. Every day of your life, from the moment you met him, on this earth to the moment you meet him in eternity, what's it about? Walking in him. So from that perspective, are you done? No, no. As you've received Jesus, walk in him. Say it like this, as you've received grace, walk by faith. And you see that here in the next verse. Verse six again, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, verse seven, rooted. How many of you know rooted doesn't happen in a second? When a seed hits the ground, it doesn't have roots just a second or two later. Come on, help me out. What do roots take? What is required to put roots down? I heard it. Time. It takes time. He says rooted and built up. Do you get built up in a second? Do you get built up in a very moment of time? No. Roots take time. Building up, what does it take? Time. What's the next statement? Established in the faith. You didn't get established the very first taste of grace you ever got. Now, I'm not trying to minimize or downplay what happened when you took that taste. Baby, that was big. That was enough to change your eternal home, your eternal destiny. It took you from sinner to righteous in the sight of God. It changed all of that for you. But you didn't get rooted right then. You didn't get built up right then. You didn't get established right then. What do those things take? time walking it out and the longer you walk it out the deeper your roots go the longer you walk in him the stronger and greater you get built up the longer you're willing to walk with him the more established in your faith you really are so he said rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught when does the rooting take place? When does the building up take place and the establishing? As you're being taught the word. Oh, this is why we need church. This is why this must not be an option for us. Man, if people really knew what was happening as we sat under the anointed word of God week in and week out, there's a rooting taking place. There's a building up and an establishing that's happening in your heart and in your life that can only happen as you're being fed the word, fed the word, fed the word of God. I feel like this is better than your amening, but I'll give you time. Time. I'll give you time. Verse eight, though, he said, beware. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Notice verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of Godhead bodily. Is there anything in God that was not or is not in Jesus? No. In him. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of God. 
all the fullness of God the Father, all the fullness of God in his spirit, it all dwells in Jesus. And that's why the Bible says Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what the will of God is for man on the earth, look to Jesus. Look at what he said. Look at what he did. Look at the miracles worked by his hand. Look at the results of his ministry. He is the living embodiment of the will of God for you, for me, for all men, for all time. Somebody say amen. amen. Jesus, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, when you start talking about this and you start understanding that Jesus lived with this awareness every day of his life on this earth, particularly every day in his ministry. From the moment the Spirit of God came on him and he walked this earth in ministry, everywhere he went, he lived with this awareness, not just of who he was, but who he was in God. See, people are asking this question day and night all over the world. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? What is my life about? What is my identity? And I understand the question, but for us, we need to understand that the, that question by itself is not really what you should be asking. Who am I? It's not really worth asking or answering. Here's a better question. Who am I in God? Who is God in me? Who am I in Jesus? Who is Jesus in me? See, Jesus lived with this. This constant awareness of God inside. Never left him. Always with him. Had the Father in him. Full. You might say wall to wall Holy Ghost. <laughs> Completely full of the Spirit of God. And if you're full of something, how much room is there in you for something else? None. Why? Because you're full. And Jesus lived with the fullness. That's the same word as the word completeness of the Godhead bodily in him. And you see that in what he said. You hear it in his confidence. You see it in his boldness. No fear whatsoever. No fear to look eye to eye with the most religious people of his day. We talked about this. No fear whatsoever to lay hands on a sick man or, to, or to, to, to stand in a room with a dead little girl and say, she's not dead, she's asleep. But you gotta be brave to say stuff like that. And it's, it's proof that you gotta be brave because everybody in the room who was just weeping and, and crying, they start ridiculing him. They start criticizing him. You know what the Bible says he did that day at Jairus' house? When he put them all outside. I love that. There's your permission. Are you hearing me, church? There is your permission to shut the door on every unbelieving voice trying to make its way into your life. Now, there's a bunch of family in that house that day. A bunch of close friends, a bunch of relatives, and you got to be confident in who you are, not just who you are, who you are in God, who God is in you to look at family and friends and say, hey, y'all can wait outside. Are you willing to do that? You better be. When you're standing for something big in your life, and, and especially if it's a life or death situation for you, your spouse, your kids, you do not have time 
to be tolerating every unbelieving voice. I don't care if they're blood. You can say, mama, I love you. But if you can't get on board in faith with me, I'll talk to you when we got the victory. If you can't jump on board with, this is my house, this is my child, and, and, and we are standing and believing God. And if, if you can't get on board with that, I love you, but I'm going to talk to you in a little while. <laughs> uh, you can see we're kind of full of some other stuff too. There's some room in us. But when you are so full of God, so full of an awareness of who you are in him and who he is in you, I'm not talking about being mean to people. I'm not talking about being rude to people. I am talking about being confident. Where's that come from? Well, where did Jesus' confidence come from? This awareness right here of his completeness. Now, there's a shift I want to make in this today and, and stay with it, but I want to put a new, a new word with it. When you're talking about his completeness, Really what we're dealing with is what I've already mentioned, his identity, his identity. Wherever you get your identity from is the source from which you draw confidence. So Jesus' confidence came out of his identity in God, his awareness that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, if we had time, and maybe we will at some point, we'd look at what he said in John 17, just before he went to the cross. He starts praying, but not just for his disciples. He said, I'm not praying for these alone, but I'm praying for any of those who will believe on me through their word. This is an awesome thought. But in John chapter 17, in the Bible, recorded in red words, are you ready for this? Jesus prayed for you. If you are one of the ones that have believed on him through your word, he's praying for you. You in the Bible. <laughs> and what he prayed for you and I specifically, oh, this is powerful. He prayed that we would be one just as he and the father were one. And these are the, this is the way he prayed it. He said, I pray that just as I am in you and you are in me, that I'd be in them and they would be in me and that they would be perfect in one. Not flawless, not never making a mistake, not never missing it, perfect, complete, one. Not fragmented, not pieces of a whole, one. He prayed that for you and for me, that we would be perfect as we're in him the very same way that he's in the father. And that's why the very next verse says in verse 10, and you are complete in him. Can you say it? I am, I am. Complete, complete in him. The very same way he was complete, perfected, whole in his identity with God, you are complete perfected, made whole when your identity is in him. Outside of him, you are not complete. You are pieces of a whole. In him, perfected. In him, completed. If Jesus drew his identity 
from who he was in the father, then when we start talking about our completeness, what are we talking about? Identity. And if there's anything going on in the world right now, what is it? It is a big time identity crisis. People have no idea who they are. And now that used to be a bad thing. Now it's celebrated. Oh, you don't know who you are? You are totally confused about it? You are so brave. You don't have to live that way. You don't got to live confused about who you are. But if you're choosing to live outside of him, you are destined to live in confusion. You are destined to live in darkness. Come on, come on, get over here in the light. Get over here in the light. Find out who you are. Receive that grace. Then what? Walk it out. Every day of your life from now until you see him there. Walk it out. Walking in him. Walking in that, walking in that identity. If Jesus' confidence came out of his identity in God, where's yours going to come from? Where does your confidence come from? Your identity in him. The Lord said it to me like this several years ago. That really what, he kind of almost put it in a, in a mathematical equation. Think about it like this. Confidence minus the awareness of Jesus equals arrogance. What's the difference, particularly for the believer, between confidence and arrogance? The only difference is the awareness of Jesus. Confidence is my awareness of who I am in him. Arrogance is who I think I am in me. See, you don't want to be asking this question, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I? You want, you don't want, do you want to know why you don't want to ask that question? Because you won't find out. And it ain't going to make you happy. What you want to ask and what you want to find out is who am I? Help me out, church. In him. Who am I in him? In Jesus. Who is Jesus in me? Oh, when you find that out, get ready for confidence coming out of a fire hose. You've never had anything like that coming out of you before. Confidence minus the awareness of Jesus is arrogance. Go to the book of Philippians. Just turn back a page or so. We'll look at Philippians chapter 3. What did he say there in those verses in Colossians 2? Beware. Beware of philosophy. He said, beware of empty deceit. Beware, beware of trickery. Beware of traditions according to the principles of the world. Beware of this stuff. Beware of anything, any thought, any idea, any notion, any doctrine that would try to convince you that you are something other than complete in Christ. Beware of anything that would try to talk you out of your completeness in him. And this is what the world preaches, and this is what we have to be aware of. We've already dealt with a couple of these things, going back a couple of weeks ago. Beware of this thought, this pervasive thought in the world that says, you're not complete, but almost, if you just had more stuff. A little more money, you'd be complete. A little, pay, a little better paying job, and you'd be complete. Yeah, you got a car, but it ain't this one. Now, if you had this one, 
you'd be complete. That's a lie. And you got to beware of it. We talked last week about being aware of the lie that says you need the attention. You need the affirmation, the applause, the approval of an unbelieving world to be complete. Beware of that. You don't need more attention. Somebody say it. I don't need attention. I don't need the world's approval. You don't. You don't need that rubber stamp of their approval to be complete. You are accepted in the beloved. That's who you are in him. In here in Philippians chapter three, I want to start down around verse 10 and we're going to look at some verses you've, you've heard you're familiar with, but man, it, it would help if you knew the whole context. So let's start here. Talk about it just for a moment. Then we'll back up and, and put it back where we found it, so to speak. In Philippians chapter three, verse 10, uh, Paul writing by the spirit of God, he said that I may know him. The New Living Translation says, I want to know Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we got resurrection Sunday coming up here in a couple of weeks. Um, is it too early to start thinking resurrection? Is it too soon to start talking resurrection? No, this ought to be on our minds all the time. He said, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now notice what he said here in this next verse. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Er, what? Wait, stop, huh? Not that I have attained. Not that I am perfected. Now we've been talking about this word for weeks, even months. May the God of all grace perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now we've been hanging out over here in Colossians where the same guy who wrote what we just read in Philippians 3 said, I am complete. And now he's saying, I'm not yet complete. Does this bug anybody else? <laughs> it's when we put this back in its context, we're going to find more about what he's talking about. But notice again what he's saying here. Not that I've already attained. That's a reference to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already been resurrected, he's saying. Not that I've already been perfected. What'd he say though? But I press on. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press. I press toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now notice the very next word. Therefore, let us as many as are mature. You want to know what the King James says? Let as many as, uh, of us who are perfect. Paul, you got to help me out, brother. Are you perfect? Are you not? Are you complete? Are you not? Because just in a few verses here, we've heard him say both. I'm complete in him, although I'm not yet complete. But as many of us who are complete, well, come on, help me, man. What you're seeing right now, you see throughout the letters Paul wrote to people, it was trying to explain two things going on at the same time. Do you remember when he said, 
I've been crucified with Christ. Okay, so you're dead. No, nevertheless, I live. But yet, it's not me who's living. So you are dead. No, it's Christ that lives in me. Did you hear that? I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. Man, those are powerful words right there. Yet not I. Here's how you explain your entire identity in Christ and him in you. You do it with those three words, yet not I. So it's not you. No, it's me, yet it's not me. Well, if it's not you, then who is it? It's Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's not me but also it is me. He also struggled with it when he wrote to the church in Corinth and he said, I've labored, I've worked more abundantly, harder than they all, yet not I, but the grace that was with me. So which is it, Paul? You working hard? You sure look like you're working hard. Oh, I'm working hard, yet it's not me working hard. I'm perfected, yet I'm not. But as many of us who are, Yet, I imagine the people he wrote to had the same silence, nervous laughter that you just had. What are you saying, bro? I mean, which is it? And the answer is yes. He said, as many of us who are mature, and that's that word perfect. It's not flawless. It's not sinless. It's not never missing it or making a mistake. It's maturity. As many of us who are mature, he said, let us think like this. Let's have this mind. What mind is he talking about? Well, it's what he just said. I forget the things that are behind me and I press. And if you're grown up, you'll think that way too. Forgetting the things that are behind. Do you know that's a sign of spiritual maturity? that you're forgetting what's behind you and you're pressing on, that's a sign you're growing up in God, that you're forgetting the past. Now we've looked at 1 Corinthians 13. I want you to hold your place right here in Philippians 3. And I can even just read this to you out of 1 Corinthians 13. That great love chapter, remember we talked about this, how love, when love is showing up, what's happening? We're growing up. Love is the marker of spiritual maturity. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote and he said in verse 10, uh, when that which is perfect has come. So you're saying it hadn't come yet? Well, hold on. When that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I understood like a child. I thought like a child. But when I became a man, I put all of that away. I put away childish speaking. I put away childish understanding. I put away childish thinking. What did he just say? If you're spiritually grown up, you're going to think like this. Spiritual grown ups think differently than spiritual children, spiritual babies, spiritually immature people. And we've been going back and looking at what he said here in verse 4 love, spiritual maturity, is patient. That's one of the big markers of spiritual growth. You're patient. And it's one of the, the lack of it is one of the big signs of being a child. You know any kids that are really strong in patience? I don't. Any kids that are just really, really good at waiting till their birthday? 
really great at waiting for Christmas morning. Really good at waiting until you get to where you've been driving for the last eight hours. You know any children who are really good with patience? No. It's a marker of immaturity. Well, patience is a marker of growth. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. You, you don't show patience over the next minute or two. Patience takes time. And spiritual maturity is patient. Spiritually grown up people are patient with each other, patient with others, patient with their family, patient with their spouse, patient with the Lord. You don't want something that's not at the right time. You want it at the right time. Patient. Somebody say patient. Spiritual maturity, love is kind. That's a big marker of our growth. But then he goes into telling you what it's not. Spiritual maturity is not envious. Because spiritual maturity does not look at what somebody else has and say, I'm incomplete without what you've got. That's a childish way of thinking. You want to know how kids say it? Mine. Mine, 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 mine. But love, spiritual maturity, is not envious. Spiritual maturity says, I am complete without what you've got. I'm complete. I'm content with what he's given me. Yes, I'm in faith for more. Yes, I believe there's more in him. Yes, I believe he's a God of more than enough, but I'm not waiting on that to be content. I'm complete right now. Spiritual maturity is not envious. Spiritual maturity does not parade itself. We talked about that last week. Notice this though. Spiritual maturity is not proud. Other translations talk about boasting, talk about pride. Spiritually grown up people are not prideful people. Now we all know this and we've heard this before, right? I forget the things that are behind me. And this is something we got to get good at. Somebody say, forget about it. You got to get good at forgetting about it. If you had to sit down and watch the video replay of your life, be honest with me. Are there parts you'd like to fast forward through? If you had to sit in a room full of people and watch your life on repeat, would, would there be a handful of parts who'd be like, can we skip this? Uh, skip, can we, can we, yep, pass that, pa keep going, keep going. Yep, those were the 90s. Keep going, keep going. Keep, okay, you can stop right there. Absolutely. Without a show of hands, without a survey, every one of us have got stuff in the past that you are not proud of, you're not thrilled about, you wish it was somebody else's life and you act like it was. Every one of us. And spiritually mature people don't drag that stuff up. Spiritually grown up people don't spend time bringing all that stuff back. Whether it was stuff in your own life, stuff something somebody else did or said. Spiritual grown-ups don't live back there. Spiritually grown-up people don't think like that. They think not about the past, but about what? What's ahead? I'm pressing. God himself is this way. Don't you know and love this verse in Jeremiah 29 verse 11? I know the thoughts that I have for you. The Amplified Bible says, I know the thoughts and the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. 
plans. You can't plan yesterday. You can't be sitting there making a list of, of what you're going to do. And somebody says, what are you doing? Now I'm making a list of what I'm going to do yesterday. No, you're not too late. Plans belong to the future. And that same word in the Hebrew language that got translated thoughts is the exact same word translated plans. That's why that Bible says that translation says, I know the thoughts and the plans. It's one word. In other words, what's on God's mind when it comes to you? The plan, the future. And if it's the future that's on his mind, why you got the past on yours? Why? Spiritually mature people aren't dragging the past out into the light all the time. But notice something here. He said, love is not proud. I know there's a bunch of stuff you're not proud of in the past. What about all the stuff you are proud of? Huh? What about when the video's playing and you're like, okay, stop, watch this right here. Oh, this is awesome. Watch this. And this is the context that Paul said, I forget the past in. Back up to the beginning of this chapter, chapter three. Philippians chapter three. Just look at verse one. He said, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it's safe. I might say it like this. For me to preach the same thing to you week after week after week, it's not wearing me out. It's for our safety. It's for our protection. I'm not trying to move on. He said in verse two, oh, what's his first word? Beware. Beware of dogs. Does this sound like Colossians 2? Beware of philosophy. Philosophy. The Greek word philosophy, phila, love. Sophie, Sophia, wisdom. Beware of the love of wisdom. People who just pride themselves in how deep they can think. And they just ask why all the time. And they wear it like a badge of superiority. Yes, but why? Yes, but why? Okay, but why? Does that remind you of anybody else from any other age group? I know three-year-olds who love philosophy. Why? 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 Because I said so. <laughs> beware. This stuff is tricky. He said, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Verse three, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. He said, we worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, let me just put a little phrase in there that I think is going to help you understand what he's saying. We rejoice in who we are in Christ Jesus. You're going to find out in a second. That's exactly what he's saying. To rejoice in Jesus, you know, woo, Jesus. Okay, what? What are you rejoicing in? I'm rejoicing in who I am in him. 
and who he is in me. He said, we're the ones who worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in who we are in Christ Jesus and we have no confidence in the flesh. I love these scriptures that in one verse, you got the whole New Testament. You got everything that defines who you are, that defines your life, that defines your purpose. I love this right here. This is not hard to understand. This is so simple. Grab a hold of it right now. Who are we? We are the ones who worship God in the spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him how? In spirit. Well, if you can worship God in the spirit, what's the opposite of that? In the flesh. If there are things that you can do in the spirit, then there's a bunch of other stuff you can be doing in the flesh. But when it comes to who we are, this is where we got to be living life. This is where we've got to be pursuing God, not this stuff in the flesh. In the book of John, oh, I wish we had time to look at all of it, but starting with chapter three, there's a man named Nicodemus who comes and talks to Jesus and, and, and Jesus responds to him and says, a man must be born again. And Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this highly educated man. You know what he says? How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And I'm sure Jesus was like, no, no. What is wrong with you? No. Come on, help me out. What's the problem? Jesus is speaking spirit. Nicodemus is hearing do you suppose this is still going on with God and people today? They don't understand what he's saying. They don't know where he's coming from, what he's about, because he's speaking spirit. They're hearing the next chapter. Jesus is sitting down at a well and he says to this woman, if you would ask me for living water, I'll give it to you and you'll never thirst again. And she says, Ooh, that sounds good. Tell me where this well is and where this water is. I'd love to have that. I'd never, I'd love to never have to come back to this well again. <laughs> What's happening? Jesus is speaking. She's hearing flesh. John chapter six, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus preaches a message to thousands of people. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And these people said, this is a hard saying who can understand it. And thousands of them left him that day. Why? Cause he's speaking. They're hearing it's a problem. He said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all they could think was, well, not spirit. And he didn't even try to take time to be like, Oh no, no, let me explain to you what I mean. No, let me stop, stop, stop. No, he will speak it and he will speak it by the spirit and you will hear it if you're in the spirit. You'll understand it. It's not hard. And he said, this is who we are. Those who worship God, not in the flesh. See that woman at the well, she was like, you Jews say that in Jerusalem is where one ought to worship. We Samaritans say we worship on this mountain. See to her, worship was all about location, location, location. And Jesus is going, no, no. You're in the flesh. You're not in the spirit. The father's looking for people who worship him in the spirit. As long as your worship is about location, where you are and what you're doing physically, excuse me, physically, you're in the flesh. He said, that's not us. We worship in the spirit. He said, we rejoice in who we are in Jesus and we have no confidence in the flesh. And then in verse four, 
it's almost as though Paul just, his mind starts wandering. And he goes, although I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Where's your confidence come from? It comes from your identity. Jesus' confidence came out of his identity, the identity of God in him and him in God. Paul's talking about confidence coming out of the flesh. We've all got stuff that we want to forget because it's ugly and we're not proud of it. What about the stuff you are proud of? Love is not proud. So what do you do with that stuff? He's saying, I've got reason to be confident in the flesh. And he starts to give you all the reasons. Verse five, circumcised the eighth day. He's eight days old and he's already bragging. <laughs> and honestly, this isn't even a reflection so much on him as it is the family he was born into. Do you suppose there's anybody that's ever been tempted to get their confidence out of the family they were born in? Do you suppose anybody's ever had to struggle with that? Do you suppose there's ever been a temptation for anyone ever to have been born into a particular family, per, say one that folks know of or have heard of, and then for that person to draw their confidence out of that family that they were born in? Is this a real temptation? Oh, but aren't we supposed to be proud of the family that we're born into? Your identity as a member of that family is never supposed to trump your identity as a believer, as somebody in Jesus and someone who's in him. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, national pride. We got family pride, now we got national pride of the stock of Israel. Study this out, you wanna know what he says? I'm not like any of these people who immigrated here. You carry this thought far enough, you know what you end up with? Racism. I'm of the stock of Israel. I was born here. National pride. Do you suppose that anybody in the church has ever been tempted to let their national pride trump, no pun intended, their <laughs> identity of who they are in Jesus? Church, we've been facing this in a big way. There are some people, church-going people, saying some stuff in the name of national pride that has no business in the heart or coming out of the mouth of a believer. Because who you are in Jesus is first. Now don't misunderstand me. I love this nation. I thank God for this nation. I am thankful for this nation. Having been to some others, let me tell you, it is good to come home. You and I have been blessed beyond measure to have been given the opportunity to be here, to grow up here, to spend our lives here. And I know there's some things going on right now, maybe some things you don't like, some things that aren't so God glorifying, but I tell you this, the hand of the Lord is on this nation. He's got a plan for us. We are a part of his end time plan, but at no time in that plan does your identity as an American supersede your identity as a Christian. 
which means love has to be coming out all the time. I'm of the stock of Israel, he said. It gets worse. He says, uh, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. So you got family pride, national pride. Here you got local pride. Benjamin, the tribe within the nation. Now I wonder if anybody's ever been tempted to take pride in coming from these streets, coming from this block, coming from this town. Huh? I wonder if there's ever been an instilled sense of pride in anybody because of the neighborhood they grew up in. Well, what's wrong with that? Love isn't proud. Love does not boast. Spiritually grown up people don't find their identity in the street they grew up on, in the nation they were born in, or the house they were born into. They find their identity in Jesus. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now he's just comparing himself to everybody else who's in Israel. Everybody else is in, Benjamin, uh, in that tribe. This is where you start getting into a personal pride. Pride in your family, pride in your nation, pride in your neighborhood, pride in who you are. Comparing yourself to other people. Now he says, concerning the law of Pharisee. A Pharisee. This is educational pride. You don't know anybody who's ever been proud of where they went to school, do you? Huh? You don't know of anybody who's ever went to a, a fancy school and they tell everybody they know about it. And it comes up in every single conversation of where they went to school and when they graduated and what they graduated with and what they know. And I mean, come on. Has there ever been a temptation for anybody to take pride in their education? You know there has. Is there something wrong with an education? Is there something wrong with being born in a good family? Being born in a great nation? Coming from a good place in the city? Anything wrong with any of this stuff? No, unless. Unless your identity is in that and your confidence comes from it and not from who you are in Jesus. And now there's everything wrong with it. Concerning the law of Pharisee. Man, this is somebody so educated. This is not just a four-year degree. This is a lifetime spent of learning and learning and learning and adhering to the strictest regulation and adhering to the strictest form of the doctrine and not just you adhering to it, but making sure everybody else does too. You want to know what, folks? I am so thankful I am not married to a Pharisee. I can't imagine many things being worse than being married to a Pharisee. So much pride in their education. So much pride in what they know and, and they know what's right and every little thing you do is wrong and I know because of my education and because I learned this and because I was taught this and I sat at the feet of Professor Hoosie What's It and he taught me... Uh, it's nauseating. Pride is nauseating. He said, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. He said, concerning zeal, 
persecuting the church concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And this is the worst pride of all of them. Family pride, national pride, local pride, personal pride, educational pride. Here's the worst of the whole bunch, spiritual pride. There is nothing worse than a spiritual know-it-all. The only thing worse than being married to a Pharisee would be being married to a spiritual know-it-all. Isn't that what he said? Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which was in the law, blameless. So much pride. So much pride. And all of these things would be things that many people consider an advantage. Many people consider a gain to them. The Amplified Bible says, though, he said, I consider all of these privileges. Oh, that's kind of a hot word these days, isn't it? Privileges. Hmm. Don't you dare, believer, ever give praise, glory, or credit to something in the flesh that only God is worthy of. Don't fall for that stuff. I'm not praising anything in my life. If there's anything good, if there's anything wonderful in my life, I'm not giving the credit to anything in the flesh. No so-called privilege, no so-called advantage. I'm not praising the family I was born into. I'm not crediting the nation I was born in. I don't care what city street I was from. I'm not crediting my education. It's nothing in me personally. Let all the glory go to Jesus. Amen. And this is what Paul said about all of that stuff. Verse seven, but what things were gain to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Those degrees he had hanging on the wall, rubbish. Huh? That birth certificate that says you belong to this family, Compared to knowing Jesus, rubbish. That, that certificate you hold that says you're a citizen of this great nation, the greatest on the earth, yeah, well, compared to knowing Jesus, rubbish. It's not, it's not what I count as gain. It doesn't add to me. What adds to me and where my confidence comes from is not my identity as an American. It's not my identity as a Pearson's Copeland. It's not my identity in anything other than who I am in Jesus. Where's yours coming from? He said, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected. None of that stuff completes me. Are you hearing me? Not one of those things he listed. And here's where you see the friction of him trying to explain 
life and how it is in Jesus. How can I explain this to you? All those things, things that most anybody would be proud of and the world would tell you to be proud of them. I'm just not. They don't complete me. And because of all them, whatever, I'm not perfected. Now, who I am in him, I'm complete. Who I am in him, I've been perfected. Now what, Paul? I'm walking it out. I'm walking as I press toward the mark of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting that stuff. Seriously, you're forgetting like the, the, the education, man? You studied 12 years for that doctorate. Forgotten. Forget about it. Yeah, but, but what about the position you held as a Pharisee in the, in the, in the, in the city, in the, in the culture? Forget about it. Yeah, but what about all the, the family clout? You were born into a great family. I love them, but forget about it. That's not my identity. That's not where I draw my confidence. Are you hearing me, church? Beware. Beware lest philosophy, empty deceit, trickery of men, cunning craftiness of the world, traditions of the world, beware lest they talk you out of your completeness in him and tell you, there's a bunch of other stuff you need for complete. Church, we got young people growing up in our homes right now. When it comes to where they pursue higher education, you better as a family be led. There's been a way of thinking in this country for decades and decades and decades that if you want to be something, then you got to do this and you got to go to this school or these schools and you got to get this degree and you got to get this education. You better be led. We sat on the couch last night as a family. We had been watching these college basketball games and our daughter, Jesse and Justice started asking us about college. Where's college? Where do you go? Do you, can you stay home? Can you come home? Where do you go? Mommy, you went to college. Was college hard? Sarah's answer was really good. She did not answer about how hard it was or how easy it was. You know what she said? Baby, it was really worldly. There was a lot of the world there. And I want you to go where the Lord leads you to go. Amen. Families, we got to be led. Beware and be led. Because there's a bunch of stuff out in this world trying to talk you and trying to talk our kids out of their completeness in him. Somebody say, not in my house. Not in this house. Come on, stand up on your feet with me. Thank you, Lord. Does this do anything for you this morning? Are there some things that you and I need to go back and take a look at? Maybe some things we've been drawing our identity from. Some of that past experience, but spiritually mature people. What do they do about with the past? Forget about it. Forget about it. And then what do you do? You press on towards the mark. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. 
Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the house of faith.